Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. We were coming back from Europe, and we were really having a good time. We picked up a new car in Paris, and we were going to go visit some relatives in Sweden. It was a rainy day, coming down a hill in Brussels, Belgium, had a head-on collision with the big Mercedes, killed mom and dad. And I'm in the car. And so after all the funerals and all the things, I go back to Santee. I was kind of busted up. I had a busted shoulder and a busted ribs and stuff like that. And so I became a guide just kind of recuperating with Santee Cooper for a number of years. And the whole time I'm thinking, daggone, my parents never saw me as any kind of success. I don't, I don't know. I'll have to do something worthwhile. Maybe it'll prove them wrong because, you know, they can't see that I'm any success at all. So anyway, Ray Scott called. Ray Scott was the president of BASS. Hi, Roland Martin here, and this is the Tom Roland Podcast. Hey guys, this is Tom Rowland with the Tom Rowland Podcast, and we have just finished up a really long extended shoot. We were doing uh, both shows down in the Florida Keys, and it's been, it's been kind of a, a long couple of weeks. So this week, instead of having a brand new episode, I thought I would take you back. If you're a new listener to the podcast, maybe you haven't listened to this one yet, but it's one of my favorite ones that we've ever done, and it's when Roland Martin, the legend Roland Martin... Um, came into the studio and we did a podcast and I learned his whole story. And Roland is, he's a guy that could have done so many other things. And he, and he ended up making a, a very successful living in the fishing industry because that's what he wanted to do. And uh, just a really cool story. I enjoyed my time with Roland. He's a true legend, a true professional. And uh Really happy to bring this one back to you. So if you haven't heard this one, stay tuned for an outstanding podcast that tells you exactly how and why Roland Martin made it to be a household name in the fishing industry. All right, stay tuned. Here we go. All right, I'm sitting here with Roland Martin. Roland Martin is a man that probably needs no introduction to this audience. I will try. He has uh, won over a million dollars in BASS tournaments. He continues to fish them. In fact, today... He drove two hours out of his way to come here and talk to us uh, on this show as he's moving from place to place doing other sponsor things. But he's a man that has uh, is one of the, the true pioneers of the sport, a true icon of the sport. And he has um, 
he's continued on that path with his TV show, with the tournament fishing, with, with so many other things. And when I first started this, I thought about you as some, I made a little list. Okay. I put Bill Dance on it. Yeah. I put you on it. I put several other people on it because I was really curious about how it all started for you. But one of the things that uh, that I'm really curious, because I've been fortunate enough to follow, basically just follow along a path that you guys blazed, the television sponsorship road, where you have a fishing television show on TV, you're, you're selling product through all different types of entertainment. And you guys, you and Bill Dance and Jerry McKinnis and, and Jimmy Houston and on and on down the line, really pioneered that. But it, I know that it didn't... It wasn't an overnight success, no. <laughs> it was kind of a slow start. In fact, my parents were professionals. My mother was a school teacher, and, and my father was a head of doctorate in engineering and a professional engineer. Mm-hmm. So the fact that I fished was completely against the grain. And the fact that when I was in college, my dad wanted me to become a uh, engineer, and, and I kind of failed out of engineering, <laughs> got into like biological sciences and stuff, and I finally struggled and struggled after a lot of fishing trips. I struggled through college, but <laughs> I managed to make it in a, several extra years, but I finally got, got an education of some sort. But my parents were had already figured that I was just going to be a loser because I was a fisherman, and they just thought, they thought I was wasting so much of my time. Yeah. And so... They just tried to talk, talk me in other things. They just the fact that I like to fish. I grew up in Maryland, and uh, and they were just always on me, and, and they didn't want me to really fish much. I mean, not that I I just went every minute, and I'd, I'd forsake my studies, and I'd I'd have a lot of problems with that. So uh, I was the black sheep of the family. How many How many in your family? What was the structure? I have a brother that uh, was pretty successful, and my sister was a valedictorian of her class, and, and I just said I struggled through school, like like I told you, and, and so uh, I didn't know what to do. An uh, interesting thing happened. I kind of proved myself because I went into the military. I volunteered for the draft. Okay. And, and so I'd taken two years of ROTC because it was mandatory back in the 60s had a little bit of ROTC background. And as I got into the Army and I was just a, a private, I had a boat and I had it tied it to the barracks there, there in, in the uh, area. And this one Colonel Gravel that ran the uh, communication school, he, he kept wanting, whose boat is that? Because he liked to fish. Well, anyway, he introduced himself one day to me and he was the Colonel of the, of the whole brigade, of the whole training brigade. And so I made a deal, and I said, well, Colonel, I'll take you. I'll take you fishing. I'll take you out of Santee Cooper, and we'll catch some big bass. And he said, okay, uh, private. I was a private at the time. And so he, we get out there on about the second or third fishing trip. Colonel Gavell said, uh, have you ever thought about OCS? We're going to, you know, advanced military training and getting a, getting a commission in the, in, the, in the military. I said, no, not really. I said, I took some ROTC in college, but I don't know. I'm not really interested. Well, he says, I'm the review board chairman, and I, I'm looking for candidates, you know, to go to go to the OCS Academy, so the different <laughs> places. And I said, oh, I'd like to, I kind of like artillery. So he put me on hold. He said, okay, come in and have a review. And I went in and I passed the test. He said, okay, you're a good candidate for OCS. Well, we want to send you to Fort Sill and become uh, artillery. Well, that didn't open up. Finally, Benning opened up. So I went to Fort Benning. Got a commission, six months of hard work. I'm telling you, it was the neatest thing in the world. 
because they want you to quit the whole time that you're going to school. Yeah. They say, you can quit any minute, you know, just have to keep going. And so uh, I was great at that. My map training was so good because when I was helping my dad in some of the engineering survey work, I could take a topo map, topo map, and read all the contours, know where the lakes were going and all the ridges and bridges and house foundations, and I could take an army map and do the same thing, and I could avoid all the perils of, of going through cross-country stuff because I could read a contour map wow. big time. And so I would just traverse all around everywhere. So in all the training that I had at Manning, I, I just really did well. And so when I got my commission, Colonel Gervell got me back to Fort Jackson, and I would, I'd set a record in basic training at Jackson and also set a record at OCS for rifle, rifle marksmanship. I'd set a brigade record. He, he ran the rifle ranges as well. He said, I want you as a rifle range officer. So we'd fish all the time. And every Friday he'd come and get me and we'd go to Santee and we'd just have the biggest time. And I was a guy, a kind of a guide for some of the military guys. And so uh, my father kept saying, son, what are you going to do after the military? And I said, I don't know, Dad. I think I'm going to go to uh, I want to go uh, uh, to Vietnam, and I want to become Airborne Special Forces Ranger, and I want to do all these wonderful things to become an Army hero. Some stuff. He said, "Son, he says you're going to get killed." He says, "You need to come to Brazil. I got a job working for uh, AID, the Alliance for International Development, under President Kennedy. Mm -hmm. Kennedy was dead by that time, but anyway, he'd set up these these programs where Dad, an engineer, was now working in Brazil." working for the dams and reservoir systems in, in Brazil. He didn't fish. He didn't get me into fishing. And he said, come on down to Brazil. He says, I got you a job teaching school, teaching uh, algebra and general science and stuff in Brazil. And uh, and you and you, you don't have to go to Vietnam. Oh, I want to go to Vietnam. I want to become a big hero. No, no, son. It's better if I get you this teaching job in Brazil. <laughs> so at the last minute, I got a teaching job in Brazil. It was really cool. And 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 we got along really good that year. Uh, I worked down there, and I and well, we saw eye to eye for the first time in our whole life. We'd never been real close, you know, as a father and a son. And uh, now I could see him as a an adult. He could see me as an adult and somewhat of a success. I've been that black sheep all these years. And so he said, "Well, okay, son. Okay, you're doing better than I thought." <laughs> <laughs> and so we were coming back from Europe. And we were really having a good time. We picked up a new car in, in Paris. And we were going to go some relatives, uh, visit some relatives in Sweden. It was a rainy day, coming down a hill in Brussels, Belgium. Had a head-on collision with the big Mercedes. Killed mom and dad. Oh. And I'm in the car. And so after all the funerals and all the things, I go back to Santee. I was kind of busted up. I had a busted shoulder and a busted ribs and stuff like that. And so I became a guide, just kind of recuperating with Santee Cooper for a number of years. And the whole time I'm thinking, daggone, my parents never saw me as any kind of success. I don't, I don't know. I'll have to do something worthwhile. Maybe it'll prove them wrong because, you know, they can't see that I'm any success at all. So anyway... Ray Scott called. Ray Scott was the president of BASS. And Ray said, have you heard of my tournament trails? Have you heard of all the great things that are happening in the tournament trails? I said, no, Ray. I said, I don't want to do tournaments. I'm down here at Santee Cooper, and I'm catching big eight and 10-pound bass, and that's what I want to do. I don't want to fool with your tournaments. You don't catch those, those kind of fish in the tournaments. He says, no, we don't specialize in trophy fish. We just specialize in a lot of good fish. 
I said, no, I, I, I don't want to do that. So for forever, he'd call. Finally, in 1970, I said, okay, I'll go to the first tournament. I'll, I'll just go there. And I started doing really well. I came in second in the first one, and I won the second one, and I came in second in the third one. And I just really, like a meteor, just really took over the trail. And about that time, Ray said, we're going to organize a membership drive for Bass. There were 17,000 members, and we're going to go on a Bluebird bus. We're going to do a seminar circuit trail all from Connecticut to California. We're going to go to all these cities, you know, Dallas, and we're going to put on big seminars. Roland, you can be the handle the projector and the screen and do a deal on reading the depth finders. And then Bill Dance, you can do something. And then uh, John Powell, you can talk about shallow water fishing. I'll talk about worm fishing, and we'll put on a big show and we'll try to get members for, for uh, the Bass Angler Sportsman Society. So I worked for Ray for a whole year. I'm starting to fish tournaments, and I'm starting to make money. I made money in Brazil. I made money when my parents had, had their insurance that I got from their death. I made money fishing the trail. So now i got thirty or $40,000. And it's 1972 or three, and I'm finally married now. And I'm figuring, uh, well, I'll start television. And I had like $35,000 to spend. And I bought some cameras and I bought some stuff because I'd been doing television work and I've been doing fooling around. I lost my butt. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't, I mean, I lost everything I had. And then I'd win another tournament and I'd maybe get another camera and I'd say, I'm going to do it a, one more year maybe. And I'm struggling. I can't make any success. And the whole time I'm thinking about my parents. The whole time I'm thinking, I wish they could see me. I'm struggling to get ahead. And I'm just about ahead. And I'm not quite ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm maybe going to get into television. I'm maybe good. I'm doing good on the tournament trail. I'm a, I'm a half a success. Boy, I wish they could see me as a success. But they didn't. They couldn't. But it was a it was a motivation yeah. for me to try to prove to them, even though they couldn't see it. So anyway, Ray set the stage for me and said. This is a springboard of opportunity, winning these tournaments and being become a big deal. And finally, you got television. You can go to the AFTMA show, which is now the ICAST show, yeah. and you can you get credibility. You know, you can you can maybe get good sponsors and you can get ahead. And sure enough, about the third year or fourth year of television, I started kind of breaking even a little bit. We started with film work. <laughs> film. That yeah. was really tough. Yeah. That and then, linear editing. And, and were you and editing it was your terrible. Own it all, I did all that crazy editing. Oh, it was awful. And then we did had single tube uh, videotape with the old cassette, pl oh, all that <laughs> stupid stuff. And so, then we went to beta cam. But finally, we're kind of getting ahead. And I started working with Bill Dance. We we had a center sports group over in Little Rock. And uh, and then we went, uh, and that was that worked out pretty good. And then I went with uh, Orlando Wilson right after that, and Orlando and I had uh, had uh, had the big deal at uh, AT Communications up in up in Atlanta. Okay, we worked together as uh, partners and uh, had some big contracts. And then the guys from TNN came along. Yes, David Hall from TNN came down. They had fished with me at Okeechobee. By that time, I'd set my marina up at Lake Okeechobee, and I had a quite a great destination. And so. TNN people would come down to fish, and, and they fell in love with my television, and they decided to hire Orlando and I. They gave us a great big giant contract, like a quarter of a million dollar contract just for performance. This wow. was back when we were doing a million households a week. Yes. If you remember television back in the 
late 80s and early 90s was bigger than it is now. Way bigger. Way bigger. It would have a million households. And now we're making big money. I'd make another $100,000 on on endorsements, and I'd make another $100,000 winning tournaments. Man, I was on top of the world back in the <laughs> 90s. I mean, this, was, this looked like really a big deal. Well... And the whole time I'm thinking to myself, I wish my parents could see I'm finally a success, you know. And I, and I, at that point, I really was. Television was so big that when I had kind of a faltering marriage, the, the first marriage to to Marianne, my my son Scott's mother, yeah. I figured, well, television was worth so much because it's going so big that I'll give her the marina, and I'll take the television. <laughs> come the come the divorce, yeah. Know? Well, that was a bad choice. <laughs> it was a $7 million marina, and the television was going downhill. <laughs> so, but I, I, I'm happy with it. You know? and, and we've made television work. Well, what we're doing now, we're, we're cutting corners on television. Television is actually profitable. Yeah. You know, we just, we just, uh, we're not spending as much in production. And we're, uh, another thing we're doing, and I know you do it, with des- destinations, we try to have people that want us to come to a spot to help pay for the cost and get 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 some chamber of commerce like, money okay, and yeah. stuff you know right, those right. kind of things so that that helps a lot so we've cut we've cut expenses and we try to get destination money as well and so television is profitable from that standpoint if you just cut corners how long have you been on television i've been on television 43 years 43 years 43 years i started full time in 74 so when you got started who were you looking at as somebody well, Bi- that was doing something that Bill, you thought Bill's, maybe? Bill's always been my hero, Bill Dance. Yeah. He had he had started on the tournament trail a couple of years before I did, and he had won the first few three or four or five tournaments as leading money winner in, in most tournaments. And so by the time I started, after three or four years, I kind of caught up with Bill. But he would started television three or four years ahead of me. And I worked with Bill on doing some of the shows. So he was he, – he, he had – preceded me and i he was my hero so yeah. and he still is yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, he's just you know a great guy and he's so entertaining yeah, Bill he is. is just and so is jimmy in fact we're we're together as partners now yeah and the three we're, three, we're legends. The three legends we have uh, bill dance and jimmy houston and myself and we do little things we hit the booyah boat cleaners and we got some tackle box stuff and we have the gloves and i don't know little things but anyway we're trying to make that work and uh that's kind of all right you know it's not bad but uh no, Bill's Bill's been a Bill a great one, and I, of course I work with Jimmy just even more. Oh, really? Yeah, now? we Today, do a lot you're... of hunting together, and we, we were going to go elk, elk hunting last week, and we got all messed up and didn't go. We still might go in October. Well, that that you were telling me that uh, that was kind of an invitation that you got kind of on the fly, and yeah. I was telling you that my son uh, is is starting his elk guiding career oh, wow. this year, yeah, and he's really been good. on two hunts. And he was an apprentice guide on the first hunt and an apprentice guide on the second hunt. And then oh, the boy. following week, next week, yeah. he's going to be all by himself as oh, the, boy, as the full guide. But what, they where got, is it? What, what he, he's in uh, outside of Big Sky, Montana oh, yeah, yeah. at Sage Peak Outfitters. Oh, and yeah. he, they, they hunt the Lee Metcalf Wilderness. And okay. they got one on the first hunt, and they oh, got boy. one on the second hunt. Wow. All bow, bow hunting. Bow hunting. Yeah, so he's just on top of it. Let me talk about somebody, like when you're talking about in the 90s, how you're on top of the world. That that just reminded me of him, and it reminded me, you know, when I first started guiding, too. So you're just like. Just, I love Montana. I, I, my biggest deer I've ever killed was Montana. Yeah. yeah I was loving Montana. You do all kinds of stuff well, outside of fishing, I'm right? a better fisherman, and, and, and that's my biggest thing is, 
you know, people ask me all the time, what's the favorite thing I used to do? Well, back years ago, and, and, and we were talking about it a little bit ago, I used to be fly rod tarpon fishing. Used to be my number one thing. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of over that a little bit. I mean, I built my own fly reels. I time own flies. I did all that stuff. I built my own. I did all that stuff. I've caught hundreds and hundreds of fly rod tarpon. So I've done tournaments. I've done all this stuff like that. But I'm a little burned out over it. I don't know why. I just I just am. Well, I, you I, can I spend know. a lot of time doing anything, and I think, you know, and then you find something else that's that's interesting to you. I know um, the first time that I ever really had an extended period of time to to talk to you, I was with Bass Pro, or still am, and they would do the spring classics. And what they do for the spring classics is they send you a schedule of a couple of different cities that you're scheduled to be in. And so I show up at the hotel and I'm scheduled to go to, I think it was uh, Mobile and then the next spot over and then ending up in Louisiana. And I don't know who else is going with me or anything, but I walk down and there you are sitting at breakfast that morning. And I thought, that's strange. Now, why would Roland Martin be here uh, if he wasn't going on this the same thing that I'm going on? And I just went down there and introduced myself. I said, you know, my name's Tom Roland, and I I'm, I think that we might be going to the same places. And you said, no kidding, sit down. We started talking, and you said, you're going here and here and here. And I said, yeah. and I said, well, why don't we just ride together? And, uh, <laughs> and you said, okay, great, that's fine. We, so we rode together. And from the moment we left, you told stories. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on this on this podcast so badly because you're a very good storyteller, like a really good storyteller, and you got a lot of stories. I think of all the crazy ones. <laughs> I, to, I, I entertained these guys that I stayed with up there at uh, Douglas Lake. We really had a good time talking about stories. We that's where you just came things. from? Yeah, we just came from Douglas Lake, and I kind of fell on my butt a little bit. I had a real great practice, and I had some wonderful times catching fish before the tournament started. And then I caught limit after limit in the tournament. They were small. Yeah. I didn't do very good. Well, that's the way that's the way tournament fishing is, right? Yeah. I'm sure that in you've had your television show on for 47 years, but you've been fishing tournaments much quite a few years longer than Actually, that. Actually, well, yeah, I've been fishing tournaments since 1970. Yeah. And in that time, yeah. you have seen some some massive changes in the form of the way people fish, the boats, the electronics, oh the engines. I mean, what? How do you sum up the changes that you've seen in in bass fishing since you started? I think a lot of it came through well, not only the guides in the Florida Keys, which set standards as well, but the tournament trail people have set standards. And you know, any time that you put money on the line, whether it's a guide that's trying to excel or whether it's a tournament guy that makes his living being a professional fisherman. The success on the tournament trail set the standards in the tackle industry. All yeah. the new lures, all the new tackle. You know, just it's just it's just phenomenal. It's just uh, the electronics are just out of sight. Now. I know. Golly, it's that a, pan optics and be able to see <laughs> fish swimming around. And you can see oh, it's incredible. And now you can see the side to the front to the back. Oh, and, I know. It's and, just, and, and in real time, I mean, I don't know how I don't know how it can get a lot better. But, you know, luckily, I guess we're getting a lot of that uh, technology from the military. Sure. And, and they're bringing that over to the consumer, just like GPS technology. I mean, that was something that, that wasn't even uh, around, like when you were having your big days right. in, in, in the 90s, in the early 90s, right. that, that was pre-GPS. Well, you know, it was just before I started television. 
Ray Scott had taught me in efficient all the tournaments. My first real job was with Lawrence Electronics. Yeah. And one of the things that I had done was I'd patented a, a, a water clarity meter. And I'd written articles about how important water clarity was. And just and I had a way to measure it. And what was that called? Was that the color selector? No. It was a Do different you remember deal. that thing? Yeah. That was uh yeah, that was uh Dr. Hall uh Dr. uh Lauren Hill's uh, uh-huh. deal. And uh, I remember we, my we, grandfather we, had one of those. Yeah. He's, uh, he swore by it. I mean actually the people I'm going to to film with uh tomorrow, yeah. tonight, they're the uh spike it people. Okay. He, they bought the color selector. Okay. They have that. They have that system. Yeah. yeah. They, so I, that's one of my advertisers now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, so what was your water clarity meter? Well, it was something that never did work out. It was a photo cell, like you'd have in a camera, and it 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 shone a, a light. When I turned the intensity of the light up, okay, you take light, you turn it on, and and you and you turn it with no water in this tube. And the photocells here, so you turn the light up, and so that the little meter, little light meter, would read 100%. So you're getting a sample of the lake water? Well, so first that you... I take air. Okay. And, I, and I'm, I'm, when, I when the air is 100% translucent, in yes. other words, you can see right. through the air, it, you adjust your meter to 100. Okay. Now, you immerse that into the water, and it's, gonna, it's not going to be 100 anymore because the right. water right, right. obscures the, 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 the light. Right. So the muddier the water, the more the light's obscured. Uh-huh. So down to where it's really muddy, that's like zero. Like zero clarity right. is just like the most muddy water you could ever imagine. Then that's muddy, muddy. So it was a very common thing. You just pull it out of the water, you adjust it to zero, put it in the water, it would read 40% or 30% or 80% or whether that would be the clarity of the water. And then so what would you do with that well, information? then I'd take, say, if it was 90% clear. That means you can see pretty well. Well, I'd like more natural bait. You're matching the hatch, shad-colored stuff that, you know, look very similar to the— Smaller line. Yeah, a smaller line. And and then the other recommendation, the bottom of the scale is only reading 20 or 30%. It's really dingy. You want chartreuse. You want big, flashy things. <laughs> you want something that has noise and attraction, Yeah. you know, rather than— a subtle thing. Yeah. And so, so that never, that didn't work like no. on the open market, but was it working for you in the tournaments well, and stuff? Look, Carl Lawrence, when he was a t- alive at the time, he saw this thing. He says, man, he says, we can make a million dollars selling these color selectors. Why don't you come to work for Lawrence Electronics and we'll, we'll make these color selectors and we'll just do really good. Well, I never got off the ground. It just just didn't yeah. happen. It just, I don't know. I was all ready for it. I, didn't know, I, I guess people didn't think it was a big deal. Yeah. I don't know what happened. It just didn't didn't pan out. Oh, but I got a good job out of it. Yeah. Well, there's always there's <laughs> always things that, that seem like a really good deal, but they they don't make it. Over the years, I've seen all kinds of wacky things. People, people especially now with social media, I get messages all the time. Hey, would you try this product if I sent it to you? And oh, some, of them are, some of them are yeah, interesting. So, so. But then, you know, there's... non-disclosure. You know, they, yeah. they, they, these people, they're not even to that point. It's like, it's like I got this bait. It's revolutionary. It's got a battery in it. It does this or that. And, and you know, it's interesting. But it's hard. You, you go to ICAST show and you look at all these t- tiny oh, little booths and all of these ideas that people have. You know, I see that they're, they're going to go broke because I can see they have one little product 
and they're thinking they're going to make a million dollars on it. Right. And none of those people are ever back another year. That's the only shot they've ever made. Yeah. And but it but failed. but it's a very significant shot because they've 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 made a prototype. They've gotten some stuff. No, no, they've got all this stuff. Where the success does come, if they have that single product, it is a success when they sell it to some other right. big company. Right. That's the deal. Yeah. yeah. But some of them really work. Like like uh, like Z Man came out with that chatterbait. You know, and cool? it was it was it was different, and then yeah. people started winning with it, and oh, it does I work. Yes, I, then, I use it every day. I mean, I, I used I used it yesterday. Yeah, I mean that has that <laughs> yeah. has become like a, oh, a standard yeah. standard thing, sure. you know. And all I don't know, it's it's funny to see the the trends that go into all the fishing, and I'm sure over the years you've seen some completely wacky things in both freshwater and saltwater, but some of them are just you know silly. Right. And then some of them actually really, really work. Sure. But that's when when you start, like, without the tournaments or without the guide industry and the money on the line, that's where the innovation, in my opinion, kind of stops. Like, if you're not after that 1% advantage, like, if everybody's just going out there to have fun and, and just fish, who cares, really, right. if you catch 49 right. fish and your buddy catches 50? Right. Sure. I mean, you know, right. you both right. had a great day. Yeah, but, and, bo- and both of you were working really hard at right. it. But, but when you catch 50 fish, every single day that you go out and everybody else is catching 49 to 20, all of a sudden your percentage of, of success is way better than sure. everyone else's. And if, you know, and out of those 50 fish uh, or, or just in a, in a bass tournament, you're catching five fish that are all, you know, on average a pound heavier than everyone else's, and you're sure, consistently you doing that. Yeah. All of a sudden, you're winning the money and other people aren't, right. and people want to know what it is that you're doing. And that's where I like – I see a lot of innovation coming. And it's like in the tournaments or, or even in the guide world, but more so in the tournaments. If you can just be just a tiny bit more successful over time, that's a lot more successful. You know, my son, Scott, is that personified because what he's doing and he's seen the efficiency of, of, of and failure of everything. But like with the, the electronics, for yeah. example, his big deal now is his pan optics. And he, he thinks by using his electronics and just spotting a few extra fish a day and just maybe getting one or two to commit just one or two extra fish that makes all the difference in the world. Well, of course, of how many tournaments is he fishing a year? Well, he he's consistently winning. He's he, he was second in the year last year for the Angler of the Year for the right. FLW, and he's uh, now he's won six uh, of the big tournaments that they've had. So he's probably their most successful fisherman. Yeah, he believes in efficiency. It's all it's all just getting that one extra fish, right? It, and that's just, that's really what it's know, about, or landing that one extra fish. Like like yeah. that one didn't get off, and that's what right. we were always interested in in the in the redfish tournaments is making sure that you're finishing the deal. It's one thing to get the bite. It's another thing to get it up and go, ooh, that's a really nice one. It's another thing to get it in the boat and actually measure it, and it's right. an eighth of an inch too too big or an eighth of an inch too small. Sure. But, you know, you're, you you start to refine your process to where it's the right hook, and it's you don't use this hook anymore because you lost mm-hmm. four fish last year, mm-hmm. and now you've gotten this, and you don't lose fish anymore. But it's that it's that refinement of the process and just and just getting just a tiny bit of a percentage better. Right. And then over time, that's a lot better. That's like what you're talking about with Scott. He's right. trying to find one more fish a day. One more fish a day over 50 days, 100 days, oh, yeah. 200 days. Right. That's a lot see, better. It's really close because when you start talking about that one extra fish, all I would have needed to, to have done really well in this tournament, this last tournament, mm-hmm. was one 
halfway decent fish. Now, the first day I had about five pounder come rushing out at my topwater plug, and, and he didn't take it. I don't know why. I just saw him at the last minute. I kind of twitched it a funny way, and he just turned off of it. That would have put me in the money right there, that one fish. And it, and it came an inch from it from getting caught. So I screwed up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't 100% efficient, you know? Yeah. Just And it cost me, say, $1,000. Yeah. Just, just that one fish. Yeah. Cost me a thousand dollars. So, what is it that you think? Um, like, like when you tell a story like that, I see your eyes light up, and you get really excited about that efficiency and missing that one fish. What is it that that you think has kept you so interested in fishing for for as long as you've been in it? Well, you know, we're all competitive in nature. I mean, you know, I think I am competitive. I just enjoy. I've retired like three times. <laughs> And I'd retire and I'd sit around, I'd cut the grass and I'd tie <laughs> flies and I'd, I'd say, you know, I'm getting bored. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd, I'd say, I'm going to have to go fish some more tournaments. And the first time I retired was in 92, I think, and I came back on the tournament trail and I went on to win the Connecticut River tournament with the jet boat thing. And okay. That What's was the a jet boat deal. thing? Well, at the time, they didn't have restrictions on, on what type of boats. Okay. And so I'd gone to the Connecticut River early to, to kind of check it out. And this guy showed me some smallmouth fishing way up above these rapids that you couldn't get a boat, couldn't get up there. And I said, well, how can I get a boat up there? He said, you can't get a boat up here unless it's a jet boat. Yeah. <laughs> I got a jet boat. <laughs> I won the tournament. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the kind of thing. There ended up being about five or six rolling rules. One of them was a jet boat. The other thing was polling platforms on the front. You know, yeah. you know, well, not the polling platform, but you know how you have a, a raised front yes. deck yes. In, in your in your bonefish skin? Absolutely. To be able to stand up high to uh-huh. see the bonefish? I got one because I, I right. bonefish. You know, I'm tarpon fishing. Mm-hmm. So I put a regular front deck platform. On my bass boat. And I went to Okeechobee back in the late 90s, won a big tournament. Oh, the rolling, that's a disadvantage. Nobody else has a raised platform in the front of the boat. We'll have to make that illegal. So that was the but second thing. But they could have. They could have. And I always heard that. I, I always that, heard. That was the reason because I, I won the tournament. I asked Shaw Grigsby <laughs> that. I said, I said, well, what about just getting a little ele- elevation? He said, no, that's illegal. Can't you it. can't do that. Can't do that. And I thought, okay, well. And then I find it interesting that one tournament is allows nets and the other tournament does not allow uh, nets. I, I can't. You know why? Because Jerry McKinnis, bless his heart, I love Jerry to death. He likes to film and he likes the drama of filming. Mm. And he likes the drama of people struggling, yeah. possibly getting yeah, yeah. hooked, possibly losing the fish at the yeah. boat, all that drama. He likes that. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's I don't some. like that. I don't like that drama. Yeah, I want to catch the fish. Right. And and so. the, the landing net makes a big difference. Well, what are the other rolling rules you got? You, oh, well, uh, let's see. Boats, there was raised platforms. There was the practice rule. I remember back when I, I, I won one of the early tournaments back in the early 70s, Ray Scott, we used to have a like a little banquet night and a present presentation of awards. And uh he said, Well Roland, what's the success what's the key to your success for this winning this tournament? Well at the time they didn't have a cutoff. Mm-hmm. And they I just came in about a week or so early because it was I just 
I don't know, spent like 10 days. Yeah. <laughs> get ready for it. And I had all these fish found everywhere in the whole world. And I said, well, Ray, you know, I can come in a whole week ahead of time because I'm just kind of having my own schedule to work with. And uh, and having those 10 extra days really helps. I know where every fish is in the lake. <laughs> yeah, I said, okay, we're going to have to have rules for cutoff. <laughs> yeah. Three days, three days practice. That's kind of been the, the rule mm-hmm. for, for the last 40 what years. What do you think about that? Like, there's a new format now. There's a new tournament circuit that I might compete in. It's called the Major League Fishing uh-huh, Circuit. Yeah. And they're not doing any pre-fishing in that deal. They take you in cold like we used to okay. do for the Classic. Remember yeah. years yeah, ago yeah. when we've had the early Classics that just fly us in, say, here's a mystery lake. Just go figure it out. Yeah. And that's what Major League Fishing is doing now on their, for- on their format. We'll fl- if they expand the tournament trail like they – possibly get me in because Bass Pro Shops sponsored and Johnny yeah. Morris wants me to fish them. So he's asked me to fish them if I can work it out. But anyway, so Major League Fishing's format is just going to Lake Cold. No practice. Mm-hmm. Go catch them right well, now. That's good. Then nobody has an advantage, right? So, I mean, that's kind of their format. Unless it's a lake yeah. similar to one that you spend a lot of time on. But for me, the practice is fun. Yeah, I love to go out and try to figure things out because I try to eliminate. I, you know, I wrote a book years ago, Roland Martin's 101 Bass Catching Secrets. It's all about patterns, 101 patterns. Yeah. So I have 101 patterns to go try if it, if I have enough time to try them all. <laughs> yeah. So it's, if practice is a big time for me. Yeah. I love practice. Well, when we would fish the redfish tournaments, there was no rules on practice. And so everybody would go there as much time as they could. And if you felt like... You know, this is a tournament that I feel like I can win. So I'm going to go and spend my time here. Well, you still got to pay the mortgage and you still got to pay your bills and everything. And you're not getting paid when you're pre-fishing. So you're putting a lot of time into that one. That's time that you're not putting into these others, right? So I, th- I always thought, eh, you know, if you if you just allow people to go practice as much as they want to, you know, why not? Like, there's only so many days. And if they're practicing a whole bunch on that one, then they're not practicing a whole bunch for this other one, unless the schedule is laid out to where each tournament is a month apart from one another or something. And some people would just go camp out and try to try to become a professional. But it elevates the sport and it elevates the competition when people are are that dialed in. Another thing that I enjoy about, say, tarpon fishing, say, red fishing, say, bass fishing, is that I'd come down to the Keys and I'd say, Tom. Hey, let's go. Let's go red fishing. Tell me what's 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 going on. What's what's the good lures? And so we're having a conversation. And now when I go practicing for a tournament, if the rules allow me, I'm calling, making all my friends. Sure. I'm calling all my friends. Hey, what's going on? Or what's the what's the current deal? Well, so many of these tournaments now are going the other direction. They're saying there's no information rule. Well, that kind of ruins it because now you and I are good buddies. I, I enjoy talking to yeah. you about fishing. I can't talk to you about fishing. I can't talk to Tom Rowland because right. he's allowed to tell me a secret deal that, I, that that would help me win the tournament. Well, why not? That's fun. That's what the fun of, of, of being friends and talking fishing, and that's what it's all about. You go down to the tackle shop, everybody has a big time telling stories. <laughs> yeah. You can't do that anymore. So, so much of the tournament trail and tournament talk is on restricted basis, and you can't even look at the internet. You can't even talk to anybody about fishing. You can't look at, you can't get any information from anybody. Well, in a way, 
that kind of spoils the fun of well, fishing. And in a also, way. you know, and I agree with that, that it, that it spoils the fun of, of it a little bit. But I get where they're trying to go. They're trying to make it a completely level playing field. Let's see who the best angler is going in with no information about this place. Who can win? But what that does, in my opinion, is it is it creates so many rules and so many opportunities for someone to inadvertently break those rules. Not not like trying to, but somebody says, you know, while you're just after you, you know, you close the gas cap on your truck and you're about to close the door, and somebody says, "Don't forget, chartreuse is the color," and you're like, <sighs> you know what? People come up to me all the time because they they recognize me as a as a top guy, so they they'll say, "Roland." I got to tell you about these big bass on Browns Point. You go out on the end of Browns Point in seven feet of water and throw a a, a, a chartreuse spinnerbait. Right. And like, after, after they've said that, I'll say kind of slowly, well, you know, sir, uh, the rules prevent me from getting any information. Of course, they've already told me the information. Right. I mean, I didn't and have you anything didn't to solicit the information. I didn't solicit the information. I wasn't looking for the information. They just came up and told me about right. Browns Point and the chartreuse spinnerbait. And the first thing I said was, I can't. Get any information, but they've given me the information. I know. So there's a there's so, an opportunity to so, where I mean, if you it, were to crazy, win that, if you but were, I mean, but I didn't break any rules, right? But if you were to win that tournament on Browns Point, because for whatever reason you found yourself there and you didn't even know it was called Browns Point, and there it is, you're you're catching the fish there, and the guy says, "Hey, I told him about that spot." Well, and then it gives it but, gives somebody an opportunity yeah, to get in trouble. Uh, yeah, it, it is, and 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 so I, and I do. I don't. I don't. Uh, spend much time listening to him. I tell him pretty quick. I say, yeah. you know, I, I can't solicit it. I can't. Uh, and, and and I'll avoid Brown's point. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. really will. Of course. You know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, you'll try to. Yeah. But if you've never been on the lake before, I mean, you could. It might happen to be just Brown's fishing along. There's Brown's point. Yeah. Well, the Keys, but, the Keys <laughs> tournaments would do the same thing with, with rules that, that if, if somebody wins, they would uh, they would make a rule against it. I remember when uh, you know somebody won a, a tournament. They caught a whole bunch of redfish in a really shallow boat, and then they went and did bone fishing in a in a deeper boat. And then as soon as they did that, then the rule is you got to fish out of one boat. Out of one boat. Yeah. yeah, but you know they they always make those rules. I don't know what I think about them. I I think I think in my opinion, the more rules you have, the more opportunity there is for someone to inadvertently break the rules, which causes controversy, and the controversy is not good for the tournament. Right. People get upset, and and when people are getting upset, it, it creates an environment that's not not pleasant to to be in. So, I always, when we whenever there were a couple of tournaments that I was a part of of creating in the Florida Keys, and and my two cents always was look, just make the rules very straightforward, very black and white, and keep as have as did, few you did rules as possible. A lot of the IGFA stuff. I did some. Um, did you, you met Doctor Mike Gallops? I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's my doctor. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. He is such yeah, a he's, great he's, fisherman. He's a good fisherman. Really, really, really great fisherman. And you know, he makes hundreds of thousands of dollars. He's a concierge doctor. Yeah, you and were so telling I, me that. One I, time. You know, I, I pay him several thousand dollars a year, and he takes care of me just really well. And I can call him right now. Hey, Doc, uh, uh, I got a I got a boil on my hand. What what should I do? You know, he'll here's a prescription. I mm-hmm. can be here. Right, you know, so that's what concierge doctors do. They re- they make a referral, and if I have a problem with the, my eyes, he'll he'll send me to eye doctor. Right, that he refers. And anyway, it's just really cool deal. But he's also the best fisherman around. Yeah, I know. he is really really. Really, good. he's won two or three of the big IGFA tournaments. He fished with my partner a lot. He's yeah. He says he says this. He says, Roland, 
if it weren't for the fact that I'm making a half a million dollars a year as a doctor, I'd become a professional guide or just a professional fisherman. Right. I mean, that's what I'd want to do because I love fishing. Yeah. But he can't do that. But that's why he moved his his practice into into that type of practice, right? right? Yeah, he, so has, have he, more has, time. he has more time. He has actually Friday, Saturdays, and Sundays. He can pretty well fish three days a week if he wants. Yeah. Well, he is he is really good. He taught me a tremendous amount. Him and Robert Collins both together are a very dangerous combination of, of anglers, and they would fish with my partner, and they won a whole bunch of tournaments. But Mike, uh, those guys taught me how to snook fish. And we were just doing a show just recently, and and I was catching more than than everybody else. That you know, Rich was in the boat, and he wasn't catching him, and I was catching him. And he's like, "What are you doing?" I'm doing exactly what Mike Gallops and Robert Collins told me. I am fishing super slow, and he's like, slow. Like, what do you mean? And I'm like, remember? He told us. He said, "Look at a snook," and I picked one up, and I was talking about it, and I was like, "Look at their belly that's flat to the bottom for a reason because they just lay there on the bottom and they don't move. And if if you move that bait very, 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 very slowly, he, I mean, both of those guys told me that 90% of the people that fish for snook fish too fast. And so at, for whatever reason, that's the one piece of information that I blocked away. And I'm like, okay, snook fishing, go slow. And then that's what I do now. If I go snook fishing, I'm slow. I'm very slow with everything. If I'm fishing a lure, I fish it very slow and just hop it along the bottom and give it plenty of time. Let it sit on the bottom. Then move it and let it sit on the bottom. That's what they taught me. And those guys catch a lot of they big do. snook. They do. A they lot do. of they big do. snook. They're really good. So what about turkey hunting? I love turkey hunting. You know, I, 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 one of the reasons why I'm going tomorrow down to visit the people at Spike It is that uh, – uh, Don Rollins, who owns Spike It, is also likes to woodwork. He does. Oh he yeah, you were telling me you do that too. And 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 he's a big lays wood. And, and so I make turkey calls as well. And then I make bowls, and I'm into lathing and woodwork, and yeah. it's kind of fun. Yeah. And, and the turkey calls that I make, it's so so satisfying. Just like making a lure, I make all little lures too. The uh-huh. devil horses, and I make okay. Zara spooks, and I make all that kind of stuff. So uh, making lures. And then, uh, of course, how much fun is the tie fly? Right. You know, same kind of deal. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but making a turkey call, that, that's, that's a super now, deal. You're making you box know? calls? Box mostly? calls. Yeah, box calls. Do you do any? Well, I've, any... I've done some slate calls, but box calls maybe. Yeah. And yeah. How, do you, how did you get into doing that? You just kind of are seeing just what's out there it. and thinking maybe and, and, I might be able to make it a little better? Well, Rob Keck was, used to be the executive director for the Wild Turkey Federation years ago. He lives over in Edgefield, South Carolina. And he said, Roland, if you come to Nashville and help with the, our wild turkey convention, do some good judging and just piddle around and sign autographs or do something, I don't know. He, he had me come. And he says, I'll get you a Neil Cost original box call. I said, what's that? He <laughs> says, well, it's the best box call in the whole world. It's worth hundreds of dollars because Neil Cost is like the most famous guy. So – he gave me one, and it's, it is the best call. Well, I've had a couple of them since, and I met Neil, Neil Cost. And Neil Cost, he died about 10 or 15 years ago. But the thing is, he's recognized as being the number one master of all turkey calls ever, and his turkey calls are worth thousands of dollars, and I, I still have a couple of them. So I've duplicated them. Now, I've not built a turkey call as good as Neil's, but they look identical. <laughs> you can't tell them apart. <laughs> you take a Neil's call and you take a my call. His really sounds good and mine doesn't sound good. Why do you think that is? What do you think Because is the every, every single piece of grain of every wood 
has a grain this way. If you turn the thing just a little bit, the grain kind of runs a different way. Uh-huh. And then you run, turn it away, see how the grain would, would move? Yes. And so as you t- make that call, lining the grain is one big issue. The, 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 the type of the wood, in other words, when you look at the block of wood itself, was it from the center of the, of the log? And the, maybe, maybe the rings are closer together, or was it the outer cambium, cambium layer, and that's the, the, the lighter wood? Right. So there's all kind of density to think, consider, and all kind of strength, and there's just all kind of wood. What type so, of wood do you make it out of? Well, butternut and walnut and some of the exotic woods. But it, wood is musical, just like a good violin. Yeah. It has a certain vibration and tone. And I don't know the difference yet because I just get all kind of wood. <laughs> and I make all kind of turkey calls. How many? How and, many? And how I'll many? make like 10 perfect turkey calls. And out of, out of those 10, one will really be good. Yeah. And then one will be kind of good. And, and when you, when you see that good. one that's really good, are you at this point in making, making them, are you having a hard time determining what it is about that one that's a little bit different than this one? Well, it's, a, it's a, it, you know, when you mill everything out and do everything by hand, it's, it's how thick the walls are and, it, and the choice of the wood itself and the way you finish it and maybe even the finish you put on. There's just everything's different. And it just it's just fun playing with it. And I just like doing it. Yeah. You know? my and buddy, I've gotten a little better. My buddy it. sent me this. I just opened my computer to show you this. Um, my buddy, if I can find it, um, he sent me this one thing about a turkey call, and it was a box call, but I'm having trouble finding it. I don't know what it was to show up here. I don't do Facebook that much, but it was he sent it on on Facebook. So anyway, I thought I could show you that. But so where do you, where all do you turkey hunt? Well, for years I've I've gone like for thirty five straight years I've gone to Missouri in the spring. I missed one year. Oh, and by the way, my really good turkey hunting buddy, who I've killed most of my turkeys with, he's also Johnny Morris's uh, with Bass Pro Shop, his his college roommate. Oh. His name is Ronnie Curry, and we fish together a lot. He just recently, two weeks ago, had a brain tumor, and I've been calling him every day. Yeah. And he's been feeling down in the dumps and feeling sorry for himself. And he's, oh, I'm paralyzed. My right leg is half paralyzed. And I said, well, your arms work? He said, yeah. I said, well, I'm going to take you fishing. I'm going to send you a check. I'm going to send you an airplane ticket. I'm going to take you down to Lake Okeechobee, and I'm going to take you down to some of the swamps in Florida, and we're going to do some fishing. Oh, I don't think I'll be able to fish. I've been so sick. I've had this operation. Ronnie, I'm going to take you fishing. You know, get, get your spirits up. And so I called him today. He's ready to go. Oh, he is. He's ready to oh, go. Good. He says, "He says, when are we going?" That's so. Good. You know, so you know that it's it's good to kind of give people incentives like that. Absolutely, to talk about things. But anyway, he's my number one turkey buddy, and he's got a couple farms, and uh, we go, and we've hunted turkeys together for thirty five years and killed uh, between us probably more than we should have. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many turkeys, but uh, we you know we've really had a good time, and so. Uh, He's my he's my my number one turkey hunting buddy. What about the Everglades turkeys? Oh yeah, that's a tough one. I went down this year with uh, my lawyer. We spent a week in the Everglades, and we got two. Finally, he got both of them. In this case, I I didn't get one. Yeah. So, so but it it's tough. The only way I can really hunt the Everglades effectively is if I go in a whole month before with my swamp buggies, and I just 
do all this record, uh, reconnoitering, particularly after a rain, and get on the roads where people aren't traveling and find, after a rain, the tracks. I can find some areas sometime. That's one way. But just going in cold, the Everglades are too big, 800,000 acres. It's so easy to miss them. Yeah. And so we've had a couple couple bad years not having enough time mm-hmm. to go. That's the Osceola, right? That Osceola, and, yeah. And how do you find them to be different than the than the other turkeys, the Easterns? And They're the... just fewer of them in a more spread out area. They're quieter birds. There's a lot of predators in the swamps of, of uh of the Everglades and the Panthers and the Bobcats getting at, getting after the ones that do gobble a lot. So they don't gobble a lot. They're harder to call, harder to deal with. Yeah. They're, they're more wary. Yeah. When you're talking about the Everglades, you're talking not the park, obviously, but on the outside. Well, all through South Florida. Yeah. Just about anywhere for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. There's some areas where the Osceolas and the Easterns are right. on the same property. They, they say everything north of I-4 which is the the interstate between Orlando and Tampa. They say everything north of that has kind of a uh, isn't the true Osceola. Everything south is the true Osceola. Huh. That's the kind of the dividing point. Has there ever been do, do they does is there any mixing of the breeds? Is there are there hybrids? I, I don't know. I, I don't think know anything there about is, those. There's two. probably some hybrid deals. I know when I I hunt Kansas, mm-hmm. we get this turkey that uh, they say, and the biologists say, it's a hybrid between the Merriam and the uh, and the Rio, and it has it has the regular Merriam turkey has a lot of white in the tail. Yes, and and the and the Rio Grande turkey has kind of a a buff, almost uh, almost a, gra- a tan yeah yeah buff tail, but the uh, the cross has a little bit of both, you know, so you can kind of see the difference. Wow. You can see kind of a cross. There. Seems like when, if you got a super turkey between two species that it might be really hard to hunt. Like if it took yeah. the, took the hardest, took the best senses of this one turkey and the best senses of the other, then you become a super turkey that is, that knows you're there before you even get there. <laughs> the hardest turkeys to hunt are the tur- turkeys that people are hunting a lot. You know, yeah. when you get an area that, that are, that really good turkey hunters are hunting uh, extensively, the, the turkeys that are left <laughs> are the Smart. tough ones. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you get an area that people aren't hunting as much, like you get, uh, parts of uh, the Midwest, uh, well, you talking about Montana? Yeah, there's places there they they don't really hunt turkeys much. I know, and that's what my kinda, son was telling me. They're kind of easy to hunt, you yeah, know, they, easier. He easier just saw them because the, they're not being hammered. He just you know? saw turkeys. They look like pets in in this person's, yeah. Yeah. you know, on their farm. And he's like, "Are those? Yeah. Are you keeping those?" And he's like, "No, they're just wild." Yeah. They, he's right. like, oh. yeah, yeah. See, they haven't been hunted much, and then yeah. they're they're not so wary. Yeah, my my turkeys are yeah. definitely wary, and they don't yeah. get ter- hunted much. Right. But they're smart easterns. Yeah, they're really easterns are tough. Uh, and and you know, when you when you hunt any of those species of turkeys, they get they get real wary. Mm-hmm. So at this point in your career, what gets you excited about? What are you What are you looking forward to? You know, I'm a project person, Tom. I have a hard time sleeping at night because. I'm thinking about that perfect turkey call I'm going to build, build tomorrow, mm-hmm. or I'm thinking about that big seven-pound bass I'm going to catch on that new lure I made, or I'm thinking about some other project. And I have nothing but projects. And I'm in my 70s, and you'd think uh, I'd have time to just 
to relax and watch television. I, I don't. I can't do that. I'm. I'm. I'm piddling. Yeah. I like to piddle with, with making things and, and new new lakes and and fishing tournament. I, I don't know. I just. I just. I have aspirations of even winning the classic and probably not a real reality at this point because I'm probably kind of a little bit over the hill for that. But but I want to do it. Right. But you're on the, I mean, yeah. you're on the path. Yeah. You're, you're actually yeah. in the game. You're well, competing. Yeah. You're... And, and so I have, I have a lot of expectations. Every single day, I'm thinking all the expectations for tomorrow. And I'm thinking about all these great things. And I, and I, I, I'm, I have a whole list of projects every day. Yeah. What so. did it take? What did it take in terms of discipline or, or um, just maybe it's, maybe it's, I'm sure there's a lot of discipline because I know in, in, and I've talked to other people that have television shows about this. And I know from my own, from our, I mean, I, we've only been on the air for 15 years and getting it started is one thing, get maintaining it, mm. keeping it going is another, which takes, there, there's some discouraging times. There's some times when it looks like things are not going the way that they should. And then there's some really good times, but in order to keep it going, there's discipline. There's, there's just, having a hard nosed attitude that it's going to work and you're going to make it work. What, what do you think as far as your career goes in 47 years of television? 40, well, 43 years, 43 years. So, but there's gotta be some times where it looked really good. It looked really dark. What is it? Discipline and focus that keeps it going for the last five or six years. (laughs) When I talked to Walt, my marketing director, I'll say, what, what 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 did NBC Sports say? Do, do, do we have a contract for next year? And they said, sure, you've got a contract. I said, good, i got another year. It's like, you know, I never know. You know, I never know. I mean, I'm a pretty old guy. I mean, you know, I don't know that they're going to want me for next year. But sure enough, they do. Yeah. They, 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 they love my show, and I have a great rapport with them, and, and they give me another contract. But I'm grateful for every year that I get one because I know it could end tomorrow. Yeah. I know that. My age and the way television is, and 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 it's a sh- little bit of a shrinking market. It'd be easy not to have a television show. It would be easy for it to go away. Now I've also got some Ace in the Hole with Johnny Morris's deal, and I have some backup stuff I could do with him. So there's other things I could do. I don't know that I'd be totally out of television. Yeah, but I might lose. But I could possibly lose my television show. But I don't at this point. Everybody said, "Hey, it's great." Yeah, let's go. Oh, I mean, let's it's, go, the, it's you know? the evolution of the it's the evolution of the of the market, and 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 it's not that people aren't watching television; they're watching more than they ever right. have. Well, Tom, I think the biggest thing that I'm, it's helping me out now and it's helping my son out is uh, is uh, YouTube. Um, I'm I only have ten thousand subscribers. I've only been in it a year, and so a lot of guys have. Uh, Kevin Van Dam, I think, has 40,000. And I can LA has maybe 35,000. So some of the guys are ahead of me, but I, I'll catch up to them. Yeah. It's just going to take some time. Scott is I'm doing just, a, a Scott has job. set a record. He has got 340,000 subscribers. Yeah. He's doing He's a making a lot of money it. doing it, too. Yeah. He, they actually pay him. So that is the biggest thing on the horizon right now. And when I get my contracts with Bass Pro Shop and I, and I talk to my people at Favorite Rods and when I talk to my people and all the different uh, advertisers I have, you know one of the, one of the things they say about the contract? 
social media. How's your social media doing? How are your numbers doing? I said, well, I got 42,000 people on Fishbrain. I just posted one this morning. I got 10,000 just on this new little deal with, uh, you know, the YouTube channel. That's starting off. That's 50,000. And then I got about that many with Facebook and the Instagram. So, I mean, I got like 100,000. You know, I mean, it, it's not real big. It's But, you know, it's not as big as Scott's, but it's it's something. Yeah, but and it's, that's growing. It's really it's interesting growing. to see, see you at, uh, you know, in your 70s embracing this new right. new thing. And it's kind of like it's probably where television was. When, when you when, first got started. When like John Acosta and the guys from, from, from Bass Pro said, you will do better. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, they're, they're saying, if I don't, it's curtains. Yeah. I mean, they're saying, I got to do it. I mean, I got to do, I got to improve. But and cer- I am improving. Certainly you're seeing contemporaries not embracing it. Right. Like, it's not important to them. And, and then they just fade away. So social media is a big deal, particularly uh, in this case. Uh, I'm, my big push will be coming this next year into uh, what is that? What I'm thinking about YouTube, YouTube, yeah, yeah, the YouTube channels, yeah. And will you do something? Is, is your vision of that to do something similar to Scott, like reality yeah, kind yeah, of? Yeah, yeah, he does a lot, and I do a lot with him. I probably do. Uh, I don't know. I just did one with him last week we were up in uh in minnesota yeah and i did i did a deal up there with him i did another one uh well actually <laughs> it was a funny funny show we uh, uh jimmy houston was with ron linder and uh and as a partner and and i was with scott and we were on a little small little lake in undisclosed lake near brainerd minnesota and we were doing a scott martin challenge and that would be a part of a youtube as well but it's also one of Scott's television shows. Yeah, yeah. So that was fun. That was just last week. <clears throat> How, are you? Do you spend a lot of time with Scott? Not as much as I could, but yeah, I do. And and we get together once a month, maybe doing something. I don't know exactly what. Yeah. When he was when he yeah. was coming up, and and you're seeing that he's obviously moving towards the fishing. Was that something that you were you were supportive of? Oh at, yeah, in the well, beginning? See, he, you know he he had the abilities right in high school. He like he wanted to get a new car with good stereo. So I said, well, go out and catch shiners and sell shiners. Yeah, <laughs> or guide, you know, and he did it all that. You know, so he's he's been a been a kind of a professional fisherman ever since a teenager. Yeah, you know, certainly I mean, helping with the marina work and guiding and catching shiners and bait, and then finally with uh with the tournament trail. So, yeah. Yeah. I told him early on, though, when he was going to school, and he struggled with school much like I did. I said, Scott, learn how to communicate. Have halfway decent, you know, diction and have halfway decent English and be able to talk to all different people, older people, young people, be able to communicate. I said, that's the biggest thing you can do in life. Yes, it is. Learning a communication skill. And how did how did you encourage him to learn that those skills? Just, I guess, by example, and he and I kept hammering it. I kept because I was correct his English. Yeah, well, you know, you I was know, wondering if thing. you were gonna if you were gonna suggest being a fishing guide because, um, yeah, I find, that's, 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 I find that's that good, that is that. I mean, I, I I feel honored that that was my that was my career being a fishing guide because it taught me more about 
the things that are really important in life than than school ever did. And I struggled in school too. I mean, really struggled in school. Uh, but I was very fortunate that my parents sent me to a very good high school and they didn't allow you to mess around much. Then when I went to college, there was nobody looking mm-hmm. and you could do whatever you want. And what I wanted to do wasn't going to school. <laughs> right? it, was, it was about everything else. But my high school education was a, was was really good and so good that that I look at that as really a secret to any of the success that I've had really comes from my high school education not my college education so I wanted to send my kids to the same school mm-hmm. and and their experience was the same although they're all all three of my kids are way smarter than I am and and <laughs> did way better in school but but I uh I got into the fishing guide business and and it was clear from the right away that first of all, I did learn how to speak publicly at this high school and I wasn't asked to do it in college much, but it was an important part. You had to stand up in front of the class and you had to present, present your ideas some, uh, and sure. you had to yeah. you had to be presented with failure in a in a in a in a public form. So you're not after you do that many times, you're not afraid to get up there and say something stupid because eh, you've done it a hundred times. Everybody has. So it's mm-hmm. not a big deal. Nobody can be right all of the time. But as a fishing guide you know, especially a young fishing guide, a 20-year-old person, the people that you're guiding are CEOs of giant companies. Mm-hmm. They are people that have made a lot of money, and now mm-hmm. they have a lot of time. They're very powerful people. And if you can communicate with those people, mm-hmm. you right. can do very well as a fishing guide. But sure. but just being a fishing guide and having those people there, your communication skills are going to get better and better and better. One of the biggest things I saw as a failure was would have guide meetings at, at my marina, say, 20 years ago when we in the 80s and 90s, and uh, I'd, I'd help with the guide meetings, and we'd kind of try to refine our guide practices. And uh, one of the guys I had was named uh, uh, John, I can't remember his last name. But anyway, he worked for a big battery company one time, but he was a PR guy. And and people would come down in the morning, he'd offer them coffee, and he'd ask them first thing, what's the biggest bass you've ever caught? And uh, and the guys would say, "Oh, I'm, I'm from P- Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I've caught a five pound three ounce bass." He'd say, "That's what we're going to do today. We're going to try to catch a five pound four ounce bass. We're going to catch the biggest fish of the world of your life and your career." Well, then we had other guides that would just kind of think that was kind of stupid, and then and the guy would go out and catch a great big trophy eight pound bass, and they say something stupid. Well, we caught a bigger one yesterday, you know. So those kind of guys never got the tips. Yeah, but John would always get a big tip. He caught fewer fish than some of them. But he was he would just he just worked with the clients so well. He got tips every single day. He just never got anything less than a 20 to 100 dollar tip every single day that he ever took anybody out. When they came back, they probably asked for him. Absolutely. And so John's whole format was just keeping people happy and talking to them in the right way and trying to have them catch their personal best and making a big deal, taking pictures of every single fish and just making everything just really special. And that was such a deal with the guide clientele because it's so easy to treat guiding as well. You know, gosh, we, we've done good all week and we've caught a couple hundred, you know, fish and, you know, brag about all the stuff that happened. I had to tell the guides Another thing, when they come in in the in the evening, how guide parties want to want to uh, talk together. Don't let your guide parties or don't brag about your fish to the other guides, because what happens 
is all of a sudden your your party and you may be caught a lot of fish and you talk to my guard party we didn't catch but half as many fish all of a sudden you know making me look bad and you know that really hurts the tipping and everything else so we try to keep the guides from bragging about what they caught to the other people yeah. that are there around on, on the dock yeah know? that was that so, was a lesson that that I learned early on I learned how to be in the guiding business from Vern and Joe Bressler and Vern Bressler was a was an old cowboy he was very good at at guiding and he understood it he understood that it's a hospitality game it's a relationship game all the way down to the to the uh what you wear when you show up and we were out in Montana and Idaho and Wyoming and he was like listen when you show up you're going to look like a cowboy i don't care if you're from Tennessee i don't care if you're not a cowboy they come out here, they expect a cowboy, you're going to dress up like a cowboy. And I was like, <laughs> yes, sir, understood. So we were okay. cowboys. And okay, then, then when you got to the river, you could take your blue jeans off and there'd be shorts and sandals and, okay. and all that. But he didn't want you showing up looking like a hippie. He wanted you showing up looking like a cowboy, okay. buttoned up, tight, you know, everything. Yeah, yeah. You look like you're going to the rodeo instead yeah. of looking like you're going fishing. And and he just knew that this was this was what people expected. Hmm. And we were going to fulfill their expectations. And one of the things that he was very clear about, he's like, when you come into camp, because we used to do a lot of overnight trips, he said, when you come into camp, you don't talk about how many fish you caught. You don't talk about the big one you caught. You don't talk about any of that. When you come in, you say, did everybody have a nice day? And then you listen to their stories, but you don't tell yours because all of a sudden this person caught four fish. Your boat caught 80 fish. You don't want to, they, they don't worked want to say that. really hard for right. those four fish. Right. They had to learn how to cast all morning. It right. seemed impossible for a long time. And then they have this massive success and they catch one and they're super happy and they stop and they eat lunch. And then they have a massive success and they catch two more. And then before they come into camp, they have another success where it didn't look like it was going to happen. They catch one more, and that's four to round out the most perfect day they've ever spent in the outdoors. That's what John McClain would say. Yeah. And then you come in and start running your big mouth. Caught 80 fish. And you caught 80 fish. And all of a sudden, their day is not as good as it was. And I just learned so much like that. And then then you can apply that to life in general. Like, Mm -hmm. like, don't mess with people's expectations. Like, why Mm -hmm. why do you need to... Why do you need to do that? And and just let them tell you the good story that they had, and everybody has a good day. It's so easy, and people talking about fishing, they'll say, well, you know, what would you catch today? And so many people tried to do an upsmanship. You know, I caught a five-pound bass. Well, I caught one five-pound, one ounce. It's almost, well, that's you know, the it's trick. almost that bad. Well, you gotta, you, know? you got you to gotta know. Like, yeah. you're, you're a very accomplished fisherman. You know the trick. You let the other guy tell you first. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, 43 inches? Oh, man, we just got you 44. Sorry. But that that is a problem. And I know there's a lot of people that do that play that game. Yeah. But <laughs> So do you still have a part of that marina down with the guiding operation? Or is... No, but I actually guide a little bit on the on my, on my own. Yeah, and, uh, and I have a little bit of a premium so price. So somebody should you know? go fishing with you? Absolutely. It's a little bit more expensive than a normal guide party but you know what i try to do and i usually have autographed books and autographed pictures and i tell plenty of stories and i make it a, a really special day sometimes i really do some special trips yeah like you know go for two or three days you mm-hmm. know really make a big deal out of it and i also believe it or not have three places to go now this year that are as good as i've ever fished <laughs> one's a private lake another's a 
kind of a secret place in the Everglades. Another is another place way up in the Stick Marsh areas. That, yeah. Uh, so, so I mean, these are kind of really off the wall little places, but boy, they're good fishing. And so, know? when somebody, if somebody decided they wanted to do that, I mean, for you've been on television yeah. for so long. I mean, a lot of this is that yeah. would be a lifetime dream for a lot of oh, a yeah, lot of I, fishermen. I do so, some, I, and you understand I that once a month or a couple times a month. So, what would what would that trip look like? They would they would meet you, and you would give them all these books, and you know, I don't know. You know, a normal guide trip probably cost about. Four or five hundred dollars. I usually charge like a thousand dollars. Okay, that's not unreasonable. No. And then I usually take them somewhere special, and uh, we stay. Often it's it's not around Naples. Often it's way upstate or or or, or and it, sometimes Okeechobee. Yeah, Okeechobee can be good. So I really have four or five places that are just really outstanding. But like the Okeechobee fish, I just don't take people to Okeechobee because it's not always the perfect place to go. But maybe it is yeah. five or six times a year it's the perfect place to go. And when it's really right, I have my contacts and, hey, we'll go to Okeechobee. I'll get you a big one. Yeah. And I, I used to guarantee at one point big fish. I don't really guarantee it anymore. But I did. Yeah. If you yeah. When you were guaranteeing yeah. big fish, would that be on lures or, or, or bait or what? Or would it yeah, matter? Well, both. You know, I, I kind of quit doing that. Uh, I used to have a double or nothing kind of guarantee. But really? Not, yeah, years ago, but I kind of quit that. Yeah, you might be the exception to the rule. I've always I've always had this opinion that guaranteed fish yeah, was not hard. good. It, it, it was not good for tough. the industry. It's tough. Well, it's the tough. reason I'll tell you my my reason. You're 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 obviously an exception, but I always thought. There were people in the Florida Keys that used to guarantee fish. To guarantee fish, like seriously, mm, like you're gonna first of all, you're gonna lose a lot of yeah. money. <clears throat> but yeah. then right. what I realized is they're just guaranteeing you that you catch a fish. Okay, mm. so I can guarantee somebody that they're gonna catch a fish any day of the year. It might be a snapper, it might be a Jack Crevel, and so I'm thinking, okay, so what you're gonna do is you're gonna go out and you're gonna cover your yourself by spending some of the most productive time making sure that these people catch a species of fish that they didn't want to begin with. So now you book a tarpon trip, but you're snapper fishing. Mm, so yeah. I always yeah, kind of yeah, thought that, yeah, that's, 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 that's not be. really a good thing. Right. But when you're guaranteed fish, that the, could the be different. A few times I, I guaranteed, I'd have a, like at, a, at, at Santee Cooper, when I had such a good guide operation there, there were a lot of eight pound bass around. That's really a benchmark yeah. for a big fish. And so, I, the spawning season would be on, and I'd have dozens of bass on beds, and I'd guarantee it double or nothing. I'd say I guarantee a double or nothing the guide trip. I can put, I can catch you an eight pound bass, and a couple a couple times I, I didn't. A couple times it didn't work. Did they but, pay you anyway? But more often than not, I was ahead of the game. Yeah, because I only did it. I only did it on days when I knew when I knew that I had ten of them found. I mean, uh, I had fish. There, I mean, I knew that I could catch one. You know? Yeah, but so double had, or nothing—that's that. You come away with a good di- guide day, yeah. guide day, right? Well, that was back when I didn't, I wasn't in the premium that I am now. You yeah, know, I haven't done it recently. It's fun though. I enjoy the fishing part, and to get with some—I like more than one day. It's kind of tough to just come along with just a, a, a day and you meet them and you, by the time you travel with, like some, some of the places I go are quite a ways away. Yeah. Sometimes it takes us a half day to get there. We fish that evening, maybe fish all the next day, maybe fish the next morning and come back 
that day. So it's maybe a three-day trip, but, you know, we've had enough time to we've hit a couple evenings and a couple mornings, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that's all freshwater. I do some salt water. I got a 28-foot Mako, so I do a little grouper fishing. Uh-huh. And then I have uh, the regular flats boats. Oh, I have an old Aquasport that I rebuilt. Yeah. Oh, you ought to see that thing. A 1967 Aquasport. Uh-huh. Oh, I got to show you pictures. I'll show you on the thing. You wouldn't recognize it. I've cut it down a flat level boat. Yeah. It's a deck boat now. Oh, really? A deck Aquasport. And I got a big uh, power lift on there with a 150 uh, four-stroke. Yeah. Big tower. Oh, it's, cool. It's wild. That's cool. It's, a, it's the most wild like a, boat. Is that like a, a, a boat that you're spending a lot of time in? Or kind uh, of special I take days. People, I take some guide trips down the down in the Chukalusky, and I look for snook and and uh, uh, redfish, you know, on the flats down there. Yeah, and that's kind of cool as a tower boat. You know? Yeah, so Charlotte Harbor, things like that. These days, do you do you like um, bass fishing better or saltwater fishing? I enjoy saltwater fishing so much, but you know, to, to, every, we've had hurricane problems, we've had red tide problems, we've had a lot of problems in saltwater that I haven't had in freshwater. Yeah. And my freshwater has been more consistent this year, in the last couple of years, actually. With the red tide issue we had this year and the hurricane issue we had last year, the fresh freshwater has been way better. Yeah. So, yeah. And you're in an area now, the Naples area, yeah. where you're spending a lot of time where you're probably yeah. seeing considerable effects of, of the water issue. This is the worst red tide we've ever had this year. That I've ever seen. I've been there 20, 25, 30 years. I've, I've never seen one this bad. Yeah. Yeah. Like on the grouper deal, we've had to go out. Uh, our, our normal run to get the groupers now are 70-mile runs. Wow. We're running 70 and, and miles. And you're doing that in a 28-foot boat or 24-foot boat? When I have other people that I fish with. Okay. You know, too. So this one guy, George McLaughlin, has this really nice uh, four-engine setup with one of those sea tender. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. things. Yes. Oh, gosh. And we uh, we just rock and roll. We go out there 70, 80 miles, and we catch we catch pretty good fish. But that's a long run. Yeah, tough, tough run. Yeah, when you get out seventy miles off of Naples, you're in you're in really deep water. I mean, there's like I know people are catching uh, tuna out there, and well, maybe actually going seventy a going straight out seventy. We're still only a hundred and twenty forty feet feet yeah, deep. Some of those guys really just to the north of you there are yeah, taking their going, four engine setup and they're going way out. They're and going out to the deep water. Some, yeah, we're not. Incredible right, fishing yeah. out there right. that yeah, nobody that nobody goes. Right, there are some really good fish out there, and you know you know what I want to start working with, and I know you've probably worked with it is, uh, you know, pulleys ridge and all that. Have you? Yeah, I, I, I've much? never been there. Boy, that's that's some good stuff. It's seventy, eighty, ninety, hundred miles out, you know. But you know, there's some really good fish out there, and then I like the off of Tampa. You know, there's some. Uh, yeah, really that's good where riches. these guys are going out of. I think like that Tampa area, and they're yeah. going straight out uh, sure. a long way. I don't know what it's called out there, but they show me some pictures, and they're catching some yeah. massive fish. So, if you were to, you know, we we look to the future, we've looked to the past, and right now, what is it that you're the most excited about at this time of the year, at this time of your life? Well, as of last week, when I talked to Johnny Morris, and he talked trying to talk me into making this major yeah. league fishing debut again, you know, coming out of retirement again for the third time. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. I think that, that would be one thing. I think thing. you should. That would be good. I think you should. I don't think yeah. that you can sit around. Like you mentioned, so, you're just cutting grass no, I can't and making sit around. turkey I mean, I, I, if, I, even if I didn't do that, I'd be, I'd be busy making bowls and turkey calls and 
and doing a lot of stuff, you know. Oh, and I'll, I'll tell you what I really enjoy doing is reloading and oh, yeah? long, long range shooting. Oh. And I have some big half minute uh, long range thousand yard rifles. Uh-huh. I only have a 50-yard target in my backyard. I only get set up for 50 yards. But I get a conograph, and I get all the speeds down, and I get all my reloads done. And then when I take it out to the Marsh Grove, and then I put up my 500-yard targets and stuff, then, you know, I can get that in a thousand. But I have Smittenbender scopes. I have, you know, I have Night Force scopes. I have big handmade rifles. You yeah. know, and I got some big stuff. I got now, when you do stuff. that and you're working your way through that, do you— are you just kind of working out those details on your own, or have you ever been to a school like those oh, well, long range? Long you know, range I haven't schools? been to long range school, but see, I, w- I ran rifle ranges and stuff in the yeah. military, and so I've had gunsmiths working custom rifles for thirty years, and so I've even done a little gunsmith work myself. And I have my own machine shop. Yeah, uh, I have a you know a good uh, uh, Bridgeport mill and a wow, you know. Some good lays. I got some. I got some heavy duty stuff. I, I got. I'm not. I can build stuff. Yeah. I built the Minkota trolling motor propeller. Yeah. And you know things like that. I had 23 years of royalties on that. Really. So I've done some some inventing and patenting. Mm-hmm. Patent several things. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but the long range shooting, I find that to be oh, I super it. interesting. I, just, I, I think that I haven't been to the long range school, and I probably need to go. Well, there's just but so much. But I do read much. about it. I read, yeah, yeah. There's, there's just a lot so to much that. involved right. with the curvature of the earth and the, the oh, humidity and the, right. the wind and every single. And thing I study that. that and I read a lot about it, and so yeah. and you know, there's so much to be had on the internet on that subject. You can spend weeks researching uh, long range shooting and, and and all the stuff about shooting in general, reloading and yeah, like all that. of it, fishing, it hunting, just, turkey hunting, yeah. turkey oh, calling, it's, it's, it's making fantastic. turkey calls. That's 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 really what has has been the biggest changes in 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 our lives. And we're from two different generations, but man, the internet oh, has really changed oh, everything. I'm an expert now. I can become a long range expert because because of the internet, right? But I, I have the background anyhow. Yeah. You know, so and I've done a lot of that. Yeah, but still, so. ammunition changes. The yeah. guns are oh, sure. changing. Yeah, everything's yeah, changing, changing, and right, you right, have right. to you have to apply the new sure. the new ideas Absolutely. and the new theories to yeah. it. But just like you're doing on your your YouTube channel, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of teaching and stuff like that. It allows people that can't get out there with you to benefit from your knowledge. I've even made YouTubes on uh, reloading and oh, yeah? some shooting. A little well, bit. I think that would be the most interesting yeah. thing about. If I were to be looking for for your YouTube channel, and I think that's what people are very interested in, is that is that yes, you are a very accomplished fisherman, and they know your name from fishing, but you have this whole other part of your personality that you yeah. happen to be very good at as well. Well, I'm not, you know, the peripheral like turkey hunting. I'm I'm a life member of the Wild Turkey Federation, and I've killed hundreds of turkeys. So so, and I've I've, I've done all the Grand Slam stuff. And pistol, rifle, shotgun, everything like that. And I've done a lot of black powder stuff. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm not the expert in that field that I am in fishing, but I'm still pretty accomplished. Yeah. You but know? but also it also puts you in a different place of learning and you're you're learning you're kind of giving out your knowledge in a different way from over here in the fishing world you're giving out this knowledge from being a guide from winning tournaments from doing this for a long long time over here this is an interest that maybe you know you're shooting and everything that you were 
in the military and you have all this experience, but maybe you got away from it for a while and you're getting back to it and you're learning all these sure. new things. And then you're, then that's a, that's a very interesting way for knowledge to be transferred from people. I'm looking forward to next month. Yeah. I've gone to the eye doctors and I've had some cataract surgery and I've had some lanes done work done, but my sight used to be 2015. Yeah. You know, really good at spotting fish. I'm uh-huh. really good at long range shooting. I'm really good at stuff. But then, with age, yeah, and neglect, my eyes have gotten to twenty, twenty five, twenty thirty five. You know, it's, it's gotten worse. Are you wearing contacts now? No. So you and don't I, have glasses at all, or contacts? I, but I got twenty, twenty five, twenty thirty vision. So it's incredible. But next month. Yeah, I'm getting all sorts of new LASIK. Really? I'm doing. Uh, he guarantees me 2020 in this eye, and he guarantees me probably 2025 in that eye. Wow, that's decent. That's incredible. So that's when decent. you turned 40, did you get glasses? Yes. Well, yeah. Everybody. I didn't. Did. These these yes. are prescription. Oh, okay. But then I have reading glasses too. But you're still. I mean, yeah. still though, a lot of people's eyes go. Oh, they do much quicker. Yeah, they do. And I somehow I've made it to 50 without needing glasses. But we've gone through this whole thing with my son's eyes. He had this uh, he had this issue called keratoconus, and it would kind of make your cornea kind of cone shaped rather than mm. like a it was looked like a the end of a football rather than the end of a basketball. Man, we just went through all of this stuff, and and we found this doctor that could do this procedure with B vitamins in the eye, like a drop, like an eye drop, and then hit it with blue light. And then it strengthens the eye, just like you would you would know this from from making stuff, epoxies that mm-hmm. you that you hit with a blue light and they mm-hmm. turn hard, mm-hmm. really, really, mm-hmm. and they're super strong. But mm-hmm. before, if you don't hit them with that mm-hmm. particular blue mm-hmm. light, it's just goopy mess. Mm-hmm. Well, when he hits the Ultra the light, Ultra yeah, light. It, when he he puts this vitamin B drop in there with all kinds of stuff, and then when he hits the eye with thirty minutes of blue light, Ultra it strengthens violent. the fibers of the eyeball so much that the disease doesn't affect it anymore. So okay. it's done, oh. and the the only alternative to that before was a cornea transplant. Okay, and I just always say thank God for smart people because this doctor is so incredibly smart. His name's Doctor Boxer Walkler from California, and I took my son out there, and he went from twenty six hundred vision <whistles> to twenty fifteen. Oh, golly day! That's amazing. Twenty six hundred. That's almost blind. That's the internet too. Twenty six hundred. I mean, like I found barely seen anything. Yeah, I know. And I found all these uh, doctors and these resources on the internet. 2015. I mean, yeah. And now he's an elk. That's the one that's an elk guy killing elk out Isn't in Montana. That that's crazy. It's just amazing. And and wow. we're just so fortunate to to have that. But I know we got to wrap this up because I know you got you got I, places I gotta, to go. I got to drive to Georgia. But I can't thank you enough for going out okay, of your Tom, way to, to you. come thank and, and spend some time you, with me and, you, and be on this show. And it's a, it's a real honor. You know, I'd like to, I'd like to just, just like I told Bill Dance, I'd like to honor you and thank you for, for laying the foundation for really, for people like me to, to follow behind. And, uh, you, you guys hacked your way through the jungle and, yeah. and we have a it nice, was, it was nice fun. paved road. It was, road it was to, fun. It was follow. fun getting things started. It was fun. Yeah. Well, you did a great job and you're still doing a great job and, and you're a fun guy to talk to. You got a lot of good stories. So this won't be the last time. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Roland. That was Roland Martin, 
And what a great interview that was. Thank you, Roland, for coming down and going way out of your way to do that. One thing we didn't cover in that interview was how you can follow Roland Martin if you want to follow him on Instagram. It's Roland Martin Fishing underscore official. And if you didn't know, Roland and I spell our names differently. My name is R-O-W-L-A-N-D, and he spells his name R-O-L-A-N-D-M-A-R-T-I-N Fishing underscore official. He also has a YouTube channel that he's being more and more active on, as we talked about in the interview. And he is on an app called Fish Brain, doing a lot of posts there. Thanks so much for the emails. You can email podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. I will get that email and I will read it. And thank you so much for the suggestions. Roland Martin has been suggested by a lot of people, uh, as have so many of our other guests. And if you suggest it, I will try to track them down. So thank you so much for your suggestions and for your emails with encouraging words. I really appreciate it. If you could, take a second, go rate and review this podcast on iTunes. That does a lot for us. And until next week, I'll see you on the water. Through the blackwater bayous and in the dark Louisiana night floats a duck camp, alive with the sounds of swamp pop, and the smells of Cajun cooking. From the Mississippi Delta in Venice to the Cajun prairies of the Southwest, me and the Duck Camp Dinners crew will be hunting and eating it all. This is Duck Camp Dinner. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Four in the Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Birds up in the sky.